like us to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Gospel of John, chapter 10. Now, how many know what's in John 10 without looking at it? But I was hoping you all would know. (laughs) What is it? The shepherd. Where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The first 18 verses of this chapter is a a fairly long speech, a, a, a saying of Jesus. But we know it where he says, I am the, what kind of shepherd? The good shepherd. And that word good there means more than just I'm the true shepherd. The Greek word means I am the noble shepherd. I am the model shepherd. But I like that word, I am the noble shepherd. In other words, not all shepherds are noble. But he says, I am the noble shepherd. Shepherd. Now, to properly understand this scripture, I have to go beyond John chapter 10, and I want you to see where Jesus says that he's the good shepherd, he's the noble shepherd. I want us to see the larger context in which he is speaking. You will notice that there, the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, they're all in red letters. And whoever created the chapter divisions probably created it in the wrong place. (laughs) Because the context here is that Jesus is in a conversation with the scribes and with the Pharisees. We all know who they are, don't we? He's in a conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees. And actually, if I draw a little larger picture for you, all the way from chapter 7 and verse 1 to the end of chapter 10 is one long, continuous story. And I want us to see where Jesus talks about himself being the good shepherd. See it in the context of the whole story, John 7, 8, 9, and in chapter 10 as well. It is often referred to in John chapter 10 and verse 10, the thief comes not but to steal, to kill, and destroy. I am come that you might have life, amen, and that you may have it more abundantly. And it's very opposite of the coming of the thief. The coming of Jesus as the good shepherd, his purpose is to lead us into an abundant life. But there are, there's somebody else in the picture here that he refers to as the thief, who's not interested in leading you into an abundant life. But the thief comes for the reasons of stealing, killing, and destroying. Now, most people who I've ever heard make reference to John 10.10 about the thief make the assumption that the thief is the devil. It is not the devil. Um, It doesn't mean that he's not behind the situation. 
But a lot of people just preach this, that the devil, he's the, the thief, and he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, I don't doubt that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but it is not a first-hand reference to the devil in John 10 and verse 10. Uh, the thief is mentioned in verse number 8, where he says, Everybody that came before me are thieves and robbers. That's not referring to the devil, is it? Everybody that came before me are thieves and robbers. Back in verse number 1 of this chapter, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. So whoever the thief is and whoever the robber is, he gets into the sheepfold in an illegitimate way. Now, is that referring to the devil? Well, I guess in a general sense, behind the scenes, yes. But I think uh, there's actually something much more closer at hand. One of the things in reading the Gospel of John, and I don't want to belabor this point to prove it, but most of the Gospel of John takes place in the city of Jerusalem. Only a very, very small amount, and I mean minute amount, takes place in Galilee. Only a very little bit takes place in the province of Judea. Most of it is in Jerusalem. It, this is a very Jewish Gospel. And I won't take the time to show you all the references because that would take me down a rabbit trail which is too time consuming. But most of the events in the Gospel of John take place around a feast of Israel. You will see scriptures like this. It says, and the feast of Passover was at hand. Or the feast of dedication was at hand. Or the feast of tabernacles was at hand. And almost all the Gospel of John happens against the background of one of the Jewish feasts. And to properly interpret the Gospel of John, there are, there are three clues you've got to put together. The Old Testament feast that's in the background, the I am sayings of Jesus, and there are lots of them in John, I'm the bread of heaven, I'm the light of the world, I am the resurrection of life, I am the way, the I am sayings, and a miracle. Uh, no, John doesn't call them miracles, he calls them signs. The Greek word is the signs. And when you put the three things together, the I am saying, the sign or the miracle that Jesus performed, and the background of the Jewish feast, and you put all those three things together, then you understand the key to grasping the truths of the Gospel of John, because the interpretation is, is, is discovered by combining those three things together. For instance, in another part of the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the bread that came from heaven, John chapter 6. All right, The miracle he did was multiply the loaves and the fishes. So you got the sign, the multiplication of the bread. You got Jesus saying, I am the bread. And then you have the background of the Passover where they were serving unleavened bread. And in the comments that Jesus gives when he says, I am the bread, is actually an interpretation of the Old Testament feast of Passover. If that's how John is written. But my concern is in John chapter 10. 
Now, John chapter 7, the beginning of the story, begins with the Feast of Tabernacles. You do see that in chapter 7, verse 2. And if you don't know what the Feast of Tabernacles is, then we're basically reading the Gospel blind. Because we need to understand the background of Tabernacles to understand what Jesus is doing. But it goes from the Feast of Tabernacles which was a very, very joyous occasion. Tremendous amount of celebration and and victory and dancing and a very festive time of, of a feast. And it goes all the way till you get to what's called the Feast of Dedication. Now in chapter 10 and verse number 22, you have one of those references. It says, and it was at Jerusalem and the feast of the dedication and it was winter. Time wise, it's about our month of December in the cold, windy, wintry weather that they would experience at that time. But the feast of dedication. And to understand everything that Jesus says when he says, I am the noble or the good shepherd. It's against this background that every Jew understands perfectly about the Feast of the Dedication. So, since I am surmising that probably not everybody is conversed with what the Feast of Dedication is, I will explain what it is so we have the picture in the background that Jesus is comparing himself with this Feast of Dedication. It's not an Old Testament feast. You will not find it in the laws of Moses. It's not like Passover. It's not like Pentecost. It's not like trumpets. It's not like tabernacles. You will not find the Feast of Dedication in the Old Testament because it came about in between the events of the Old Testament and the events of the New Testament. When the Old Testament closed out, there was no such thing as a Feast of Dedication. When the New Testament begins, the Feast of Dedication is there. And there's 400 years between the closing of the Old and the opening of the New. And it was in that middle period of 400 years that this Feast of Dedication uh, was instituted in the life of the nation. What is this feast? Why were they dedicating it? Why did they add a feast uh, to their many festivals already? And what was at the Feast of Dedication, after Tabernacles into the Feast of Dedication, what were you remembering? What were you recalling? What scriptures were being Red. Well, I'm going to tell you about a very evil man. Have you ever heard of a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes? How many have heard that name? Antiochus Epiphanes. If you ever have a son, please don't name him Antiochus Epiphanes. Not only is it an odd name, but you don't want your child associated with this person. After the Persian Empire fell apart at the end of the Old Testament, then Alexander the Great conquered the world, and then his empire fell apart in four different sections. And one of the sections that it fell apart into was ruled by this man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was on a mission to Hellenize the whole world under his leadership including the Jews. 
His intention was to convert them to the Greek way of life. Now, he was a brutal man that used force to dominate and to overpower, and there were plenty of skirmishes between his army and the Jewish people who worshipped this transcendent God. Have you ever heard of the books of the Maccabees? Have you ever heard of that? The books of the Maccabees. If you have a Catholic Bible, you would actually see those books in your Catholic Bible. The Maccabees were a bunch of brothers that were in between the Old and New Testament. I'll get you to their story in just a minute to understand the Feast of Dedication. The story of what happened to the Jewish people in the years 175 to 164 B.C. is told in those books of the Maccabees. Now, the reason they're called 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, and I forget how many of them there are, is because they became great heroes that every Jew, even today, will look back in their history in the Maccabees as great, great heroes of the nation. This guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, he sought to destroy what everything that he believed was a false religion in his estimation, including Judaism. This group of people that had this belief in a transcendent God interfered with his desire to dominate the world. And it interfered with the Greek philosophy that he was pushing, that man was his own God, that man is the controller of his own destiny, and of course, to, for the true Jew, there was stiff resistance to this. And he was going to bring them into line with brute force. And he massacred, at one point, 180,000 Jews to bring them into line. What he did is he took whoever was the high priest at the time, stripped him from his power, stripped him from his position. He put in his own replacements of his choice. He eventually put in a man by the name of Melanus, who was to be the high priest. And this man named Melanus was just simply serving the wishes of these Hellenistic conquerors. In this time of history, it made the Jews very, very angry. This guy named Manilus, who was the, the Hellenizer's appointment for a high priest, he ended up building a, a gymnasium for Greek athletic games where the participants played naked of all things, and they, they sacrificed uh, to, the, to the foreign gods before they participated in the games. To finance the building of this gymnasium, Melanus the high priest took all the money out of the temple treasurer to finance the building of this gymnasium. In other words, the temple treasury was destroyed. So the question I'm going to ask is this. Where were the shepherds of Israel? And why were they not protecting the flock? There are Jews who would not bow their knees to this dictator. And there are true stories of faith that you can find in this turbulent period. One story talks about a woman who had seven sons. And they refused to eat pork. And before her eyes they were martyred one by one in front of her eyes. But none of them would renounce their faith in the things of Moses. 
Did you know that that actually is referred to in your New Testament? Hebrews 11, verse 35, where it says there were those who did not accept deliverance in order to obtain a better resurrection. That is a reference to this point of history. But again, I ask the question, where were the leaders and where are the shepherds of the sheep? Frustrated by this adamant refusal under persecution, this guy named Antiochus ordered the ultimate blasphemy. And he was going to profane the temple and the sanctuary. Remember when Jesus said, beware of the abomination of desolation? Do you remember that phrase? This is what he is referring to. Let me tell you what he was referring to. The priest rooms in the temples were converted into brothels. All remnants of Jewish worship were removed and torn down, and the whole temple was going to be converted into a pagan shrine. An altar to the Greek god called Zeus was erected in the temple, and an image of this mythological deity was hung above the altar. I ask the question again, where are the shepherds when all this is happening? On the birthday of this dictator, the temple was going to be dedicated to these pagan gods. What they did, what he did, and this is the abomination of desolation that Jesus is talking about. What they did is they offered swine's blood, an unclean animal to the Jew. They offered swine's blood upon the altar. Then the blood of this unclean swine was spattered all about the Holy of Holies, poured over the sacred scriptures before they burnt them, and all through the courts of the temple there were sexual acts being committed. It became a capital offense, punishable by death, to own a copy of the scriptures. He outlawed the Sabbath day entirely, Circumcision was forbidden. If you as a mother allowed your child to be circumcised, the mother was crucified on the cross and the baby hung around his neck to die. Now this guy was brutal. Harsh. Any observance of the Mosaic law was a crime punishable by death Soldiers were posted throughout the whole land to brutally and ruthlessly enforce the observance of this, the will of this dictator. And this went on for three years in Jewish history. Now the question is, where are the shepherds? What was this thing ever going to turn around? Where are the shepherds that are supposed to be protecting the sheep? Where are the shepherds with their rods? Where are they? Well, there was an old retired priest who lived 17 miles outside of Jerusalem. His name was Mattathias. He was old and he was in retirement age. He had five sons. And the authorities forced this man, this is what they wanted to do, to go to the village square in the face, in the audience of the entire village to be there. And he was to alter an unclean pig upon the altar. And then he was going to be required to be the first person to eat it. And then the rest of the townspeople were going to have to eat it. 
So the whole village is there watching this to go to place. But Mattathias refuses to do it. Tension fills the whole air, and someone probably under fear, a citizen, comes forward from the crowd, and he steps forward, and he offers to make the sacrifice because they realize if they don't make the sacrifice, they're all going to be slaughtered. So somebody comes forward to make this sacrifice. Mattathias, when he sees this, is livid with rage, leapt upon this man and killed him. We're not making any sacrifice like this. He was so filled with rage that after he killed this man, he jumped on the authorities and killed them as well. Then his five sons kicked into action, and within minutes, all the soldiers were dead, and a deathly silence falls over the village, and the revolution had started. The revolution was taken up by a man by the name of Judas, Maccabees. He had four brothers. And against all odds, against humanly insurmountable odds, can you believe it? They brought the army of Antiochus Epiphanes down. They brought it down. This is a hugely popular story of strong faith that matches anything you can ever read about in the Old Testament. Through several battles against this evil and incensed dictator, the Maccabees achieved an astonishing victory, and they removed the scourge from the land, and the forces of Antiochus Epiphanes were driven out, and they get a mention in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 11, and verse number 34, when it says, Turn back the armies of aliens, that is a reference to the Maccabees. They're in the Bible as heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. After they had this great victory wrought by faith, with weeping the Jews went to this temple that had been profaned. The temple had been polluted and it's got to be cleansed. So what they did is they constructed a new altar made out of unhewn stones The vessels of the temple that had been stolen were replaced. And then three years to the day. Three years to the day when the temple was profaned in the manner that it was. In three years to the day, they dedicated it anew. Hence you have the feast of dedication. That's what's behind this feast of dedication. With unimaginable joy, and you and I can't even appreciate the sense of joy that they had, that after everything they had been through, that day when they dedicated the temple anew, and they had this for eight days, the lights were burning again in the holy place, the reproach of the heathen had been put away. And a miracle took place. What that miracle was, is when it came time to light the golden candlestick there, they could only find one cruise of oil that was properly sealed and sanctified for use in the temple. It was only good for one day's burning, but the miracle would be is that it burned for all eight days. And it was an astounding miracle. 
Now you can appreciate in the Gospel of John when this is all lit up at the Feast of Dedication, when this is lit up in the Feast of Tabernacles and Jesus comes on the scene and with all this light in the background, he comes and says, I am the light of the world. You got a picture of the background by which Jesus is making that statement. All right? This miracle took place. It lasted for eight days. And during these eight days of festive celebration of the goodness of God overcoming their enemies, they would tell stories about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, how one man who was so outnumbered, but by faith in God, overcame the enemy. And we as the people of God make a choice between God or, or Baal. But most importantly, during this season of of dedication, remembering the history that I just shared with you and celebrating the fact that God had given them a victory, there was some serious reflection that took place. And here was the question. Where was the leadership in our history? Where were the shepherds of Israel. Why did they not fight against the enemies? Why did they plunder the temple treasury? Why did they allow this desecration to take place? Why did they serve themselves in time of persecution? Why did they participate in it? Why did the shepherds not protect the sheep? Why did they desert the sheep in the time of need? What an awful betrayal by the shepherds that it should have been caring for the sheep. And during this time, they meditated much on Ezekiel 34. Please turn to Ezekiel 34. By the time we're done this, we're going to get a far fuller understanding of what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm the good shepherd. Where were the shepherds? Ezekiel chapter 34 is one difficult chapter for any pastor to ever read. Why? Well, just look at how it opens up. (laughs) Ezekiel 34, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Now, the whole chapter is directed towards shepherds who don't do their job. It's hard reading if you're a pastor. It's difficult reading indeed. But the promise that God makes in the middle of it, and I'll turn your attention to about verse number 11, the promise that God makes is this. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, this is the Lord, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. 
As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among the sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and the dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and all the inhabited places of the country and so on and so on and so on. We can just keep on reading down to verse number 16. Verse number 23, I will set up one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. What God is saying is this. Because the shepherds have failed to protect the flock, I will come down and I myself will be their shepherd. Are you catching the significance of this? I myself will come down and I will be the shepherd. And against all of this background that you just heard, Jesus comes on the scene with an announcement. I am the good shepherd. Now you can see how much more meaning this whole chapter of John 10 is going to take. According to Ezekiel 34... What's the reputation of the bad shepherds? Let me tell you what they failed to do. If you take the time to read all of Ezekiel 34, and I encourage you to do that, but listen to what they failed to do. It says they fed themselves instead of feeding the flock. It says they ate the fat and they clothed themselves with the wool, but they did not feed the flock. It says that they failed to strengthen the diseased. They failed to heal the sick. They did not bind up the broken. They did not bring again that which was driven away. They ruled the sheep with force and cruelty. And they allowed the sheep to be scattered and become easy prey for the enemy. And that's what he has against the leadership and against the shepherds. But he says, I personally will come and I will be the shepherd. And if you read through this whole chapter, what he says he will do when he takes over the flock, what will he do for the sheep that have been brutalized by the evil shepherds? Listen to some of the things he said he would do. It says he will search for the sheep and he will seek them out. He will deliver them out of all the places they have been scattered. He will feed them on the mountains. He will lead them by the rivers. He will feed them with good pasture. He will cause them to lie down. He will seek that which is lost. He will bring again that which is driven away. He will bind up that which was broken. He will strengthen that which is sick. And He will bring judgment upon the troublemakers that are in the flock. And he will save the flock so it is no longer a prey for the enemies. And when Jesus comes along in John 10, with all of this happening in the background, with the people meditating on Ezekiel 34, when remember the failure of the leadership in their history and what happened because the shepherds didn't stand up to do their job, and Jesus comes along with the announcement, I am the good shepherd There's nobody who misunderstood what he was saying. Doesn't that enlighten a lot, what's going on in this chapter? 
There is nobody who misunderstood what he was saying. When he says, I am the good shepherd, he says, I am the fulfillment in Ezekiel 34, which means I am God. No wonder the Pharisees want to accuse him of blasphemy, because in chapter 10 of John, verse 33, it says, you being a man are claiming to be God by such a statement. Little did they know it wasn't a man claiming to be God, but what the truth is is that God became a man to become the good shepherd. So with that in the background, with that in the understanding, now go back to John chapter 10. How many realize that background really paints the picture for you? John chapter 10 where he says, I am the good shepherd. So I'm going to ask you the question now, which you probably can guess what the answer is. When he says, all who came before me are thieves and the robbers, but the thief comes only but to steal, kill, and destroy, who do you think he's talking about? Oh, it's the devil. Well, maybe in the background we could say, blame the devil, but there's something more on the surface. Who's he talking to? Who's he having this conversation with? Chapter 9, verse 40 tells you. Who's he having this conversation with? Verse 40, and some of the Pharisees. Some of who? Some of the Pharisees. Interesting, isn't it? When he says thieves and robbers, it's interesting to know that John uses that word thief to describe Judas Iscariot. John 12 and verse 6, he was a thief. Also, it's interesting in John 18 verse 40, it's the word that describes a man named Barabbas. A robber. So, whoever these people are, they're in the same category as Judas and Barabbas. Thieves and robbers. In John 10, it says the thieves and the robbers don't enter the door, through the door. They find other ways in. They really have no legitimate authority to deal with the sheep. When it talks about people who are thieves and robbers, we're describing people who are sneaky, people who are subtle, people who practice violence, people who are dishonest. We are talking about selfish people. We are talking about people who are not interested in the welfare of the sheep. They're only interested in what the sheep can provide for them, and they have no concern about the welfare of the sheep whatsoever. They're the ones who eat the meat. They're the ones who shear the wool, all for their own consumption. These are people who brutalize the sheep. They abuse confidence for personal gain. They don't lay their lives down for the sheep. Instead, they kill them, they steal, and they destroy. So I ask you, who do you think he's talking about? Who's the thief? Who are the thieves that have come before him in an illegitimate way who abuse the flock of God? Who's he talking about? It's the Pharisees. It's the scribes and the Pharisees. Religion. Tradition. Thief. And robbers. My goodness. Now, when Jesus says to them, I am the good shepherd, they realize, because they know Ezekiel 34, and they know the background of what's behind all these statements, and when he comes up and he says, I am the good shepherd, they realize that he's identifying them in an indirect way as the brutal shepherds of Ezekiel 34. 
Are they thieves and robbers? Let me ask you some questions. Who is it that turned the house of God into a den of thieves? Who turned the house of God into a den of thieves? Was it the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious authorities? Notice all the way through the Gospel of John how the scribes and the Pharisees steal, kill, and destroy the sheep. Remember I said this is one long story. John 7 through John 10 is actually one long story. Remember what happens in John chapter 9? The man who was blind from birth. Do you remember that story? And they asked the question, Master, who sinned this man or his parents that he was blind from birth? And Jesus said, well, that's not the question, neither one. Uh, Do you remember that? And do you remember when Jesus healed him? Would you please tell me what the Pharisees did to him? Testing your Bible knowledge here. They cast him out of the synagogue. And they also made the announcement, if anybody believes on this Jesus, you get thrown out out of church. You get thrown out of the synagogue. So who's doing the killing, stealing, and destroying? Who is brutalizing the sheep? How about John chapter 8, the woman caught in the act of adultery? What were they going to do to her? Oh, so who's doing the killing? Who's going to kill her? Isn't that amazing? They were going to kill her in the name of tradition. They weren't interested in her welfare. They kill, steal, and destroy. John chapter 12, Lazarus. You know, John chapter 11, Lazarus raised from the dead. Do you know what the Jews, the Pharisees wanted to do in John 12 to Lazarus? Kill him. You can read it, John 12, verses 10 and 11. It says they plotted to kill Lazarus. Why? Because too many people were believing on Jesus, so they had to get rid of Lazarus. Would you please tell me who's doing the killing? What about in John chapter 5, the man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda? Who was more interested in protecting their traditions than seeing people healed? Who's stealing miracles from people so that they don't break their traditions? Who's killing, who's stealing, and who is destroying? All the way through the Gospel of John, who constantly plots to kill Jesus for his good works? Who is plotting his death all the time? In chapter 16 and verse 2 of John, who thinks they're doing God a service by by putting people out of the synagogue and by killing those they oppose? Who thinks they're doing God a service by by doing that? Who protected their warped sense of holiness by excluding people who needed to be made whole? Who replaced the word of God with their traditions? Who brutalized the sheep by imposing false traditions on starving souls? Who laid burdens on demands on them but never fed them? Who left the nation weary and heavy laden with their traditions? Who thought they had the key of knowledge but actually shut the door of the kingdom of heaven? And who had no legitimate access to the hearts of man? All I can say is this. Thank God that Jesus didn't come in the name of religion and Jesus didn't come in the name of tradition. Thank God he came as the good shepherd what a statement 
Thank God He didn't come in the name of religion. Thank God He didn't come in the name of tradition. Thank God He came as the Good Shepherd. What does it mean to come as the Good Shepherd into such a situation? Well, that's what John chapter 10 is all about. Unlike the thieves and the robbers, Jesus does not run in the face of danger. Because in John 10, he talks about hirelings, they run. Here is the law that existed at the time. If you were hired to look after sheep, and there was a lone wolf come, you were required to defend the sheep against one wolf. But if two wolves came together, the hireling could run for his life. Jesus, the good shepherd, doesn't run. Amen. Let me say that again. Jesus, the good shepherd, doesn't run. Did you catch that? He doesn't run. If Antiochus Epiphanes comes against you, he doesn't run. He stays. Unlike the false shepherds, Jesus lays his life down for the sheep. John 10 and verse number 15. That's the pattern of his life. His whole existence is for the welfare of the flock. He lays his life down. He's constantly and always voluntarily giving of himself for the good of the flock. There are times when he's with them 24-7. He prepares tables for them. He anoints their heads with oil. He restores their soul. His whole life is lived sacrificially for their sake. He doesn't use the sheep for his own benefit, but he gives his life for their health. I am the good shepherd. Unlike the failed leadership of Israel, Jesus gives security to people. After all, he did say, I am the door. What does that mean, I am the door? Well, out in the field, it's nighttime. The sheep might have to stay in a cave. But could you tell me what stops the wolf or the bear from entering into the cave? The shepherd's got to sleep. So you know what he does? He sleeps across the door, the entryway of the cave. And no sheep is going to go out without waking him up and passing over his body. But more importantly, no wolf or no bear is going to get in either. He is the door. That's why he said, nothing will snatch them out of my hands. He's the door. Unlike the thieves and the robbers, Jesus provides intimacy. All through John chapter 10, communication is constant. How it says four times in this chapter, my sheep know my voice. My sheep hear my voice. There is intimacy to the point where the sheep have come to recognize his voice through association they have learned that his voice they know when a stranger is speaking and the thing is he knows each one of those sheep by name which means he is intimate enough with every one of those sheep that he gives them personal names that reflect their character or oh, there's spotty or there is high jump or there is it just goes, and he just gives them all these affectional names. And he knows them all by personality. He knows them all by name. 
And he just, and they know his voice. Intimacy. Aren't you glad the Lord knows you intimately? Amen. You're just not a sheep in the flock somewhere. He knows you personally and he knows you intimately. Unlike the false shepherds, Jesus provides nurture. He says, they go in and they go out with me. What that means, he keeps leading them to satisfying pasture. He leads them from pasture to pasture. Their needs are met and they are satisfied because of the shepherd's great care. Unlike the failed leadership of Israel, Jesus leads the sheep. Now here's something for you. Sheep are not driven from behind. You can do that with cattle, but you can't do it with sheep. Sheep are not driven, they are led by your voice. You can't drive a sheep, you lead them with your voice. Why? Because through intimacy, they have trusted and they continue to trust your voice. So a shepherd never says go, a shepherd always says come. That's important. There was a man who heard the story about you don't drive sheep from behind, but you lead them with your voice. He was touring in the country of Israel, and he was just learning all the culture of the country. And as the bus is going by, he sees a man on the side who is behind the sheep, throwing stones at them, kicking at them, yelling at them, trying to herd them along like they're cattle. And he says, that's not right. That, that's, I, I, I learned that they, you lead sheep from, from uh, in front. And so we asked the bus driver, I said, do you mind stopping? I want to get out and ask this guy a question. And so he gets out and he says, what are you doing to the sheep? He says, shepherds don't do that to the sheep. And the man says, what makes you think I'm a shepherd? I'm the butcher. (laughs) There's an important principle there. If we're driving sheep, we're butchers, we're not shepherd. In other words, the good shepherd knows his sheep. He has developed intimacy and trust with the sheep. They recognize his voice and they've come to know his heart towards them. Listen carefully. The shepherd knows the rate of pace that they can walk. So he knows how to lead them. He knows how quickly to get them to their destination and to bring them good pastures. Now we heard prophetically tonight that God knows how quickly the people can move forward. He knows it. And he gently leads. All through his earthly life, Jesus fulfilled the role of a good shepherd. He succeeded where the evil shepherds of Ezekiel 34 failed. He seeks and he saves that which is lost. Under the authority of the scribes and the Pharisees, the sheep were brutalized. He came to restore their souls. Now Jesus has literally laid down his life for the sheep. Not as a lifestyle, but he laid it down on a cross. And according to John 10, verses 17 and 18, it says he has the power to... Raise it up again. Now here's the good news. That Jesus, the, the shepherd, the good shepherd, is now exalted. He's risen from the dead. He is exalted. 
and he is ascended on high. And from his position of seating on the right hand of majesty, the highest position in all the time, in all the space, in all the universe, he's still acting as the good shepherd. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 20 says the one who is raised from the dead it doesn't say this time the good shepherd it says the great shepherd of the sheep and what that means he's still pouring out his life on our behalf he ever lives to make intercession for us he still is leading us beside still waters he still guides us in the paths of righteousness he still prepares tables for us. He still restores our souls. He still makes us lie down in green pastures. He still comforts us with a staff and his rod. He still anoints our heads with oil. He still causes our cup to be overfull. Goodness and mercy still hunt us down. Amen. He still is the good shepherd. But now that he's ascended, he's more than the good shepherd. Hebrews 13.20 calls him the great shepherd of the sheep. Folks, that's the Jesus that we serve.